Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Tom Towns. Assistant Professor of Political Theory and European Politics at Leiden University's Institute of Political Science. For a change, although I expect this to be the first of many, I am talking to an author not about a book, but about a new and topical paper they've written. Today, it is the need for an EU expulsion mechanism, Democratic Backsliding and the Failure of Article 7, published in January by Springer in the Res Publica Journal. Dr. Tone's paper is especially relevant following Viktor Orban's re-election to a fourth consecutive term as Hungary's Prime Minister, and doing this with an increased popular mandate, together with the arrival in Parliament of a new, to, of a new party to his illiberal and eurosceptical right. While the EU and its member states rallied to their core values in support of Ukrainian democracy and the country's European vocation, Orban used his campaign to resist sanctions against Russia, block weapons transit paint the opposition as EU-loving warmongers and himself as the last bulwark against globalists and what he calls Western gender insanity. Ukraine has forced the EU to pick a side, to go beyond three decades of mere words about democracy and the rule of law. So after, after Ukraine, how should the EU deal with the development of autocracies within its borders? Tom Towns has a radical answer. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, could we begin by you outlining the broad arguments in your paper and why you decided to write it at the end of last year. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the broad argument of the paper is that, unlike maybe supposed, the sovereignty, if you will, over membership of the European Union does not only lie with the EU member states individually. So that, that's what I would call the standard view. The standard view is that only a member state can decide to leave the European Union via Article 50 in accordance with its own constitutional requirements. Mm. And while there's obviously strong political and normative reasons to want to protect member states' membership, right, so to underline this kind of sovereign view. What started to trouble me as I experienced and worked on democratic backsliding in Europe over the last 10 years or so is the niggling concern with the possibility that an EU member state might become what I call frankly autocratic. Mm. So if if an EU member state was to go in the direction of say Belarus in terms of its constitutional arrangements and politics, or even we can imagine um, things could 
degenerate even further than that. The idea that the other EU member states could do nothing to disassociate themselves from that member state was something that I found very problematic. So I started to think of ways in which EU member states may dissociate from a frankly autocratic state. And the idea here is not to recommend that this course of action should be taken uh, right now with respect to, say, Hungary, but rather to emphasize that this is a, a legal and possible course of action that would also normatively be um, desirable, or at least would be amongst the options that ought to be taken to um, to cut off an autocratic member state from European integration um, in the future. One of the motivations is political. It's the idea that these, what I've called the standard view, that EU member states are fully sovereign over their own membership and in no way could um, be expelled from the European Union, that that actually empowers autocrats uh, in the European Union. So if you have a population that is largely majority or even a strong majority is in favour of membership of the EU, but they're also supporting um, political leaders that are backsliding on EU fundamental values, then you're really, by, by emphasising this possibility of disassociation, you're really pushing a choice onto that population. Right? Do you yeah. want to continue with this um, this sort of development, given that the costs may eventually be membership of the EU? The, the mechanism that I describe in the paper is one that I've explored a little bit with a, with a colleague of mine, a lawyer, Marianne Chamon, a lawyer in Maastricht. The idea is that collectively pro-European, pro sorry, pro-democratic member states could collectively invoke Article 50. And then in the procedure whereby they withdraw from the EU, if enough member states are doing this simultaneously, they could use their qualified majority in the council to negotiate very favorable terms whereby, for example, the resources of the current EU are transferred to a new supranational institution. They could then adopt the acquis communautaire. They could adopt the case law, the jurisprudence of the ECJ. And then the idea is that they could go on largely as before, but without an autocratic member state or member states. So the, yeah. the article that I wrote has this, has this legal component, but mainly it's an exercise of normative political theory, whereby I, ask, I, I argue that there's a strong normative case for including, for recognizing the need to expel autocratic member states were that situation to arise. Okay, well, we'll, we'll come back to, to the argument um, after, after this sort of big, broader question, which is, it may come as a surprise to, to some listeners that the EU has values and norms, that it, that it isn't just an economic and trading arrangement. What, what is the history of the EU as a values organisation, and, and how did we end up with Article 7? So, uh, to, to, to a certain extent, you're asking the wrong person. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a historian, and others have written much more, much more eloquently on, on the development of Article 7 and, 
and its prehistory. An article that I particularly appreciate was written by a, a Polish jurist, Sadursky. He has a, a great piece on, on the kind of history backdrop of Article 7, which I learned a lot from. Mm. If you, if I'll, 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 I shall link to that uh, to both articles uh, in the in the post attached to this podcast. So, sorry, continue. Yeah, so so if you will, the the EU in my optic was also always um, a value and norm based association. The the initial ambition of European integration was always normative, but the vehicle of integration was initially strongly economic. So if you, if you look, and, and I've learned a lot recently from reading, um, from reading a book on this by Peter Varovchek, initial political actors that, um, that are founding European, the, the institutions that lead up to the European Union, right? So the, the European coal and steel community and so on. The, the objectives are really quite clearly um, normative objectives, right? Peace in Europe, cooperation between great powers, um, the you know increasing t- the the taming, if you will, of of German military ambition and so forth, while recognizing that that needs to take place in a context of of mutual growth and cooperation. These are very these are very clearly normative goals. And then in the history of the kind of EU as, as a values-based organization that increasingly uses its values, you can see that um, the use of value conditionality in the EU is something that really develops alongside conditionality in development politics. So you see um, in response to Idi Amin initially that development assistance and development politics is increasingly shaped in terms of um, conditionality, initially negative conditionality, so it, in contexts of gross human rights violations and so forth. Um, um, where was I? So in, in terms of um, the EU as a values organization, so you see this starting to be copied over from development politics. It gets uh, very, it becomes very important in the context of the Copenhagen criteria, so especially later accession, accession of, of Central and Eastern European member states, it becomes increasingly important um, that these states show that they are making progress on uh, values-related kind of governance. Um, so democracy, rule of law, human rights, the protection of minorities, and so forth. And then that becomes crystallized in, in the European Union, in, in the Treaty of the European Union, under Article 2, centrally Article 2, which lists the fundamental values of the EU, including democracy, equality, the rule of law, and so forth. And also uh, Article 10 in the context of democratic backsliding is really important, which kind of just declares that the European Union is an association uh, which is founded on representative democracy. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of, I, I suppose, the legal aspect and even the political aspect in terms of conditionality is something which slowly comes in over time and mirrors what I would, what I would recognize as, as a kind of normative origin uh, which which really predates back to the beginning of of this European integration project. Yeah, and, and one of the theoretical tools you use uh, in the paper is this concept of militant democracy, um, which uh, 
I mean, there's quite a rich literature on this now, and we, we've discussed it a couple of times on this podcast before, but c- could you take us through that and, and how it's informed your argument? Yes, great. So to get a little bit more into the detail of the argument, what I, what I, so the, the, the central mechanism for dealing with um, democratic backsliding, but in general, the violation of fundamental values is, as you, as you mentioned in your, in your previous question, it's Article 7. Article 7 um, has a procedure, outlines a procedure whereby a member state can be sanctioned by losing its vote in the council, which is one of the main legislative bodies of, of the EU. Mm. The article is stated in quite a general fashion. So it says that a member state could lose rights and privileges, including their vote in the council. Um, but most literature is focused on, on this loss of a council vote. And basically, what my article does is initially I provide a critique of that sanction. So I say the Article 7 sanction is problematic because if you were to strip a member state of their right to vote in the council, but continue to hold that state subject to EU law and policy, you're in a situation where you're undermining some quite fundamental democratic principles. Um, And because the purpose of Article 7 is to affirm and to police, if you will, these fundamental values of Article 2, including democracy, you start to see something of a normative incoherence Mm -hmm. because the sanction itself undermines the value that the article purports to defend. That's, let's say, the first argumentative step. So the first argumentative step is to say that the sanction in Article 7 is problematic from the perspective of democratic legitimacy. Then I argue, okay, would it be problematic, I I ask, would it be problematic for an autocratic member state to retain their right to vote and participate in European institutions and European legislation? And I argue that that is also deeply problematic, right? If an autocratic state retains their right to participate in EU legislation and EU policymaking, what that means is that all European Union citizens and all other member states are agreeing or going along with being bound to law and policy, which is co-decided by an autocrat who does not enjoy democratic legitimacy. So here we see a kind of a paradox, right? Stripping the, the member state of the right to vote is normatively deeply problematic. It's incoherent with democratic legitimacy. And on the other hand, doing nothing is also deeply problematic. And it's at this point where I draw militant democracy. So I say, look, militant democratic theory is designed to deal with exactly these sorts of paradoxes, right? Militant democratic theory asks, when is it acceptable normatively to use sanctions that are themselves anti-democratic to the defense of democracy, in the defense of democracy? Mm. And... I study militant democratic theory, and, and my answer is that the most robust defenses of militant democratic theory, I base myself here mainly on, on three authors, on Lauenstein, so the original militant democratic theorist, and, and in contemporary theory, uh, more on Alexander Kirchner, my colleague in, in Leider, Bastian Reipkema. I say, look, these, these moderate accounts of militant democratic theory, they agree that there are certain conditions that should should limit militant democratic action, right? So it's, it's not okay for democracies to act anti-democratically 
whenever they feel threatened, there needs to be you know, a real threat. The threat needs to be an existential threat to the democratic nature of the, of the polity. And the anti-democratic action needs to be itself um, necessary to contain that threat. So I, I explore these different conditions. And then I see if they apply in the EU context. And there the argument is that because there's always this possibility of disassociating from an autocratic state, it's never permissible for the EU to act anti-democratically. Mm-hmm. The idea is that disassociation from an autocratic member state would not be anti-democratic. So there always exists this possibility for non-anti-democratic responses, which would contain the threat of um, anti-democratic forces within the European Union, the threat to the democratic character of the EU. Because that's a possibility, anti-democratic possibility, policy options, right? So militant options are no longer legitimate on these kind of mm-hmm. classic lines of militant democratic theory. So that's, that's the, the detail of the argument regarding militant democracy. Do, do you think, I mean, what, what struck me reading that was in, in practical terms, uh, there have been plenty of studies of this now, very few decisions taken in the Council of Ministers are taken by vote. Um, most things are, 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 you know, are left to consensus. Does that make any of this less of a punishment, do you think? Or, or, or does your principle still stand? Mm, so do, I think the principle still stands because it's, it's a principle principle, right? <laughs> the, fact, <laughs> the fact that um, EU member states agree to act consensually when consensus is not legally mandated it's a political choice, mm-hmm. and it's a choice that's perfectly within the bounds and the scope of their authority. The fact is, they have this choice because there is a procedure that details what's minimally required for a vote to be successful. And in, in, either, in either case, I suppose, um, the question is not so much for me as a democratic theorist what the resulting legislation would be substantively, right? So if there's a mm-hmm. if there's a huge difference in the types of law and policy that would be made with the inclusion or the exclusion of this this frankly autocratic state. But it's it's a deeper, it's a more philosophical principle. It's the idea that agreeing to be co-governed by an autocrat means trading mm-hmm. in some of one's civil freedoms and liberties. Yeah, and actually um you have this uh, very interesting section where you compare, where you talk about the purposes of penal sanctions and make make the comparison there. And you know, you look at what principles there most apply in this case. And what jumped out to me were the inoculative and dissuasive uh, elements rather than punitive, for the for the very reason I was just describing there. Because as I understand it, if if this nuclear option happened that you discuss at the end of the paper where everyone else leaves, uh, deploys Article 15, they leave the EU and they just left, let's say, Hungary, for the sake of argument, inside, the Hungarians would still be members of the single market, still members of the European Economic Area, which, given everything that Orban and his people say, it sounds like kind of that's what they want. 
So they'd end up pretty much with what they wanted, but it would be the rest of the EU that would be protected from having the autocrat in their midst. Do you think is is that a fair argument? Do you think? Sure. I mean, it's it's look the the idea the idea is that dissociation from an EU member state who becomes frankly autocratic would indeed inoculate the European mm. Union from this autocratic influence in its lawmaking and policy making. Right. The extent to which it's um, desirable from that point to continue economic integration with this, frankly, autocratic state in, in this hy- hypothetical, a future, frankly, autocratic Hungarian state um, is, of course, kind of an open question. And, and we, we move into a different, also a different realm of normative thinking from from the realm of supranational integration, where I think because we're trading some of, because member states are trading some of their sovereignty with other member states, it becomes incredibly important what sort of constitutional character these other member states have to, because, because it has a, has a knock-on effect directly to how we can think of ourselves as, as political citizens, as free, as free citizens. And it moves mm. into a realm of um, well, to what extent do we think it's desirable to have very strong economic links with a frankly autocratic state? Right, moves into the realm, if you will, of, of free trade agreements, of foreign policy. And, and in that context, um, the European Union has been quite proactive in using kind of normative conditionality criteria to try to, to, try to push for change, to try to uh, get some governance reforms. Sometimes... Uh, as I've argued in the past, uh, in a manner that's that's um, also problematic, normatively mm. speaking. But we're in a different kind of a kind of context there. Um, yeah, I also think it doesn't really make sense in international relations because now then we would be talking about really um, external relations to think about punitive sanctions, right? Uh, because we we leave. The analogy becomes even more stretched once we're in properly international relations. Within the European Union, we have shared institutions, we have uh, a shared framework whereby this analogy to the penal uh, context, even though there is no kind of penal coercive um, institutional architecture in the European Union, it, it makes more sense because we're doing something kind of concretely together. Um, and that becomes more stretched, right? The, the kind of standard criticism of international law that there isn't a global sovereign and so forth become um, increasingly important when we're talking about external relations. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to, to come down to the practical again, but uh, the, the, that, that's the way my mind works. But the, uh, you know, looking back at the history of economic policy and fiscal policy over the last, uh, joint, joint EU fiscal policy over the last 20 years, um, do you not think there's a danger that these tougher rules or, or even the nuclear option would be applied to some and not others. I mean, for example, if if Italy or France were to elect a far-right government, which is entirely possible, um, and, and, you know, in this in this EU, do you think de Gaulle would have satisfied these, these kind of norms? I mean, this, this, is, this is, of course, a, an excellent question. And, and obviously, politics will, will proceed in manners, that, like in, in ways that correspond to to political actors' desires and wishes and ambitions and, and preferences. Yeah. 
and so forth, and, and not necessarily in line with what a political theorist like myself might determine is, is normatively coherent um, or, or desirable. Um, I suppose one, I, th I think the task as a political theorist in, those, in that context is to call out the inconsistency mm. and to reflect on why that inconsistency is problematic, right? What are the foundations of normatively of what's problematic about this inconsistency, whether it's some kind of um, nativism, if it's, if it's our own state, which, which is not sanctioned and it, and it ought to be the state that we're a member of, whether it's, you know, some kind of realist bowing to, um, to economic uh, criteria over, over normative criteria or democratic legitimacy or whether it's something else that's going on, some kind of um, ethnic criteria, some kind of, you know, there are all sorts of possibilities. But at the end of the day, um, I think we do have to be realistic about the fact that if serious backsliding occurs at the level of one of the major EU powers, then European integration as a project both has failed and is likely to wind down and change in character. Right? If we mm. see one or more major European states that become frankly autocratic, um, to go back to that term, whereas other member states are not uh, and, and therefore position themselves against that autocracy, those developing autocracies in this hypothesis, then I think it's... Um, I think it's really the end and, and the failure of European integration as, as a project. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the joint triggering, triggering of Article 50 is is really the, the, the fascinating proposal in your paper. And, and as you said earlier, it something like this is critical uh, to someone like Orban, uh, particularly particularly, as I said earlier, reinforced with, with this new majority. It does suggest that a majority of Hungarian voters want to have their cake and eat it. They they want the benefits of European Union membership, but they want to carry on uh, behaving and, and, and even pushing it further. So do, do you think that this is, you, you quote Mark Rutter and his talk about refounding the European Union or the European project. Do, do you think this is something that he did have in mind when he made that remark? Let me, let me, jump back to something that you said slightly earlier on in the question before I answer that directly. Yeah. I think we need to be very careful to conclude from the Hungarian elections that the majority of Hungarian voters want to have their cake and eat it. I think what we see in Hungary, and that's, I mean, that's really the fundamental problem of democratic backsliding, right? We have a result here, which if Hungary were still to be fully democratic state, that with, with free and fair elections, then we would have to conclude this, right? Mm. But in fact, the Hungarian state is not a fully democratic state. The ruling party, Fidesz, controls two-thirds of the media, all of the regional newspapers, almost all of radio, almost all of television, with, with a couple of exceptions. Right? It's incredibly mm. successful in getting out pro-government propaganda in ignoring or vilifying the opposition. Right? This is not an environment in which we can conclude 
that the results of an election mean that the people support this project. I think what we can conclude is that propaganda works. And yeah. in, for, for that reason, I think we need to be very, very careful with, uh, with how we consider um, the legitimacy of these elections. Now, regarding the comment by, by Mark Rutte, as, as he formulated the comment, I wrote, a, I wrote an op-ed about it at the time in EU Observer. And as the specific formulation of, of the comment in the Dutch parliament referred to a discussion amongst European heads of state as discussing this as a, as a possibility, as a, as a kind of, he called it a very nuclear option. Mm-hmm. But the reference was to refounding a European Union without Hungary and Poland. And of course, he didn't explain what he meant with that. But for me, that meant that at the highest levels of European politics, there was an awareness that disassociation would have to take that road if it were to take any road because of the constraints and the the guidelines, the boundaries of the European treaties. Do you, I mean, you, you described it, well, he described it as very nuclear. Do, do you think there is a uh, tactical nuclear option short of that, which would be something like what the EU did to David Cameron in, in 2011 when he, he vetoed the fiscal compact and every other member state then signed a new intergovernmental treaty? So would it be possible to... Create a, to create a union within the union, or does that really not get us out of this potential problem? Is that, is that, is that insufficiently dissuasive to, uh, to the autocrat, and is it insufficiently inoculative to the, to the remaining members? I think it is, I think it is important. Um, I think one of the conclusions of my argument uh, that dissociation should and must be the ultima ratio uh, response to democratic backsliding. One of the consequences of that is that we need to think very hard and very seriously about all of these steps that we can do before that to try to ensure that that option is never needed. Um, One of the possibilities is, for example, using the rule of law conditionality mechanism as as has just been announced Mm. against against Hungary. And one of them is interpreting that, the commission interpreting that that rule um, broadly to ensure that action can be taken against EU um, funding of the Hungarian state, kind of um, in, in areas where direct corruption is is not proven, but just on the basis of their judiciary no longer being independent, for instance, of the ruling mm-hmm. party, and, and budgets being threatened via via that uh, lack of a kind of robust rule of law institutions. Um, one mechanism would be to try to um, bring sanctions procedures via infringement proceedings against backsliding member states. And, and again, another one would be to exclude backsliding member states from further projects of European integration, as, as you suggest. It's one of the options that I discuss in the article that I, that I mentioned before, with, which I wrote with Marine Chamon, um, mm-hmm. the possibility of kind of using this two-speed Europe um, possibilities to exclude autocrats from further integration. But of course, the problem that we have there is if we're, if we're considering a frankly autocratic state, then the kinds of exclusion that 
what sometimes called differentiated integration can give us, right? Excluding some member states from going further is exactly that. It's excluding them from further integration. They're already included yeah. in, in yeah. lots of integration. And they're included in ways which, if they were to be frankly autocratic, are deeply problematic from a normative perspective. So it, does, it would not solve the problem um, if push comes to shove, which is why I think and argue that disassociation is the legitimate, coherent, and appropriate final political sanction for, for yeah. democratic backsliding. I, just, just so I understand, though, because it wasn't 100% clear to me, if let, let's assume 26 members left the EU, deployed Article 50, left the EU, leaving one country behind in the EU, the EU would continue to exist and the EU would continue to, to have the EEA agreement with the external countries. Is that correct? So there would still be all the benefits of the EU, I guess, except fiscal transfers because all the other fiscal transferers would have gone. I'd have to think more about that specific point. So basically what would the EU as a corporate legal institution would continue to exist, but it would exist as a shell, yeah. which has no other members and therefore none of the benefits of European integration. Um, the question about then the relation between the European institution as a, sorry, the European Union as a legal entity. So the, let's call it now for, for ease, the, the old European Union and yeah. the agreements which that European Union has with other institutions and, and other states, whether they're trade agreements or whether they're, uh, like you say, the EEA and, and so forth. Um, that is an area that I haven't puzzled at very much. Um, and we need to think more about how that would work in terms of mm. the legal aspects. Um, I think it's fair to say that the extent to which economic integration takes place outside of this context of the EU, which is very particular, right? And which, um, in which it, the context of which we are considering this um, standard um, sovereigntist view of, of membership versus my political view of membership. Um, it would be it would be considerably easier to then dissociate further in terms of economic cooperation. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, you, you rightly pointed out uh, or corrected my my assumptions around what a 60% vote of Hungarians mean. So, uh, but you wrote, um, you co-wrote an editorial for your active immediately after the election, calling on the commission to take advantage of the developing split between the Poles and the Hungarians following the Ukraine war um, and, and to launch the conditionality mechanism, uh, which they promptly did. Um, do you think, and you have kind of suggested this, um, that while while that's a, a good, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, divide and rule tactic, there is a danger that it will focus the conditionality mechanism very specifically on, on the budget and, and not have a wider application. Do you, do you think that's, um, is that a risk? That's a risk, but that's, I mean, we're already down that road. Uh, Hungary and Poland yeah. were incredibly effective in watering down the rule of law conditionality mechanism to such an extent that now legally the way it's formulated, the um, actions against 
states have to be brought in terms of threats to the EU budget. That's been an explicit, um, that's been explicitly incorporated into the mechanism. So in that sense, and this is, this is something that people don't realize um, perhaps as, as much as they should, but if, if the rule of law conditionality mechanism is interpreted narrowly, um, and, and my colleagues Dan Kellerman and, and John Moraine have, have um, made this case quite clearly, if, if it's interpreted narrowly, so you have to actually prove um, direct corrupt uh, use of specific funding or graft, then the rule of law conditionality mechanism is in fact just a weaker, slower, and less effective version of something that already existed. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's a real danger. Um, regarding the, the, the editorial in, in your active, there is, I mean, there's always a risk, right? In, in treating, well, in trying to make some concessions to Poland on these terms while moving forward against Hungary with the hope that that would split up uh, their further kind of split up their um, their alliance on, on rule of law issues. I think there really our idea, Jakob and my uh, idea, is that it would be a kind of pragmatic... Um, using something which is which isn't great to to our advantage what's not great is that the rule of law conditionality mechanism is, is so uh, narrowly written now uh, the result being that it would be very difficult to um, bring against Poland at this at this stage unless it's interpreted very broadly but to use that in a political way to try to to try to um, as I said, break up this kind of rule of law alliance. I mean, all in all, this this does feel like a turning point. I mean, the, the, the war is forcing liberal democracies to turn more militant, let's say. Orban has been re-elected. There's a credible threat of a return of Trump in 2025. Do you... Do you do you, do you think that this this refounding potential refounding is 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 becoming more credible now? I've always said that this refounding this this kind of withdrawn refound procedure is both kind of fantastical and and seems fantastical, but um, in certain very possible, not likely but very possible circumstances, will become rapidly realistic. Um, one thing which I, so I don't, I don't have a crystal ball on and I, I, this is not generally the kind of business that I'm in, but I think that mm. if, if backsliding remains contained, remains contained to, um, several, but few member states largely, um, and, and that it gets worse in those states then this is something that we could definitely move towards. If we see um, more tectonic shifts in European politics, including in larger member states, um, for example, with the election of Marine Le Pen in France, mm. or your example was uh, the election of a, a populist radical right uh, leader in Italy, right? then I'm not sure if there would be much of, of refounding. I think there might be some withdrawing and um, perhaps the creation of, of new of new 
institutions of European integration with with different memberships. But that's um, that's very speculative. Yeah. Well, uh, as usual, to end the podcast, I've asked my guests to recommend two books or, or maybe papers in this case to, to listeners, uh, one from their field and one personal choice. Uh, Tom, what have you chosen? Uh, before I get to my choice, I... I... I fudged earlier on uh, the book of a, of a good friend of mine, uh, Peter Rovcek. So the title for that is, is Memory and the Future of Europe. I don't know why I couldn't okay. think of it. I, I, I read <laughs> well, it good. It has much. the word memory in it. That's why. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Freudian. Yeah. Um, so so that's, that is highly recommended, but that wasn't my choice. My choice was actually a, a, a newish book by, uh, by another two colleagues of mine, um, Carlo Inveniziacetti and, and Chris Bickerton, wrote a fantastic book on, on techno-populism which I highly recommend. Um, and then the, the more personal choice, a book that I've really enjoyed reading recently um, was The Goldfinch uh, by Donna Tartt. All oh, right. Okay. Well, uh, today I've been talking to Tom Towns about his paper, The Need for an EU Expulsion Mechanism, published in 2022 by Res Publica. Tom, thanks again for, for coming on. It's been a great pleasure, Tim. Thank you very much.